From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media, this is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks. Highlights from our daily discussion program on race, education, and community needs after the top shooting on May 14th. Today, we revisit our chat with historian Barbara Seals Nevergold. There's this this lack of understanding, this lack of knowledge, this lack of historical teaching. And it's important, not just for the black children. Also, Leah Watson from the ACLU previews a Buffalo town hall designed to talk about the suspension rates for black students in Buffalo schools and the district's overall access to special services. But before any of that, we start the program with Jay Moran in a visit to St. Luke's Mission of Mercy. It's an active place in the heart of one of the city's poorest neighborhoods. After spending time there, two takeaways emerge. The needs of those served run deep, and the commitment of those dedicated to serve runs just as deep, if not deeper. This is Jay. Hi. This is Charlene. She's one of our missionaries. Nice to meet you. And Charlene is in charge of our baby room. Oh, wow. Which is right in here. We can bring them in in a minute. Right. And who, if you mind me asking, uh, who, who is this, Charlene? Um, one of the one of them guys that I'm babysitting for, Terrell. He work, his dad working, and I'm like a nanny. Yeah, taking yeah, care. Yeah, taking what? care of him. No, just a little baby here. Three months. I'm three months old. I call him little man. That's Charlene Mallory. She's expertly holding three month old for bail, and she's wearing a Buffalo Bills wristband. I like this too, by the way. Thank you. Yes, I'm a big Buffalo fan. (laughs) Yes. I love them. I can't wait. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. So how long have you been here? Um, 24, I think it's 24 years. 24 years? Yep. We got baptized here, me and my um, three kids and my sister and her four kids. So at least they live one um, good year I did. Oh, okay. Yep. So I met Amy and I gave my life to the Lord. So that's what I'm here to do. You love doing it? Oh, I love doing it. Yeah. St. Luke's Mission of Mercy is home to a school, recovering addicts, homeless men. It's also where 1,400 meals are prepared and distributed each day, along with clothing, baby supplies, and more. The former church was purchased 28 years ago from the Buffalo Catholic Diocese and transformed into St. Luke's Mission of Mercy. Amy Beatros is still running the mission, and she sat down for a conversation in another busy place, the office she shares with many others. What can you remember about what it was like here 28 years ago. Wow, same way it is now. I mean, you know, it, when we came here, it was like the worst area of Western New York. And uh, a lot of violence, uh, uh, crime, um, uh, it's a lot of drugs, a lot of mental illness, you know. And um, then, it, you know, it, as we were here, you know, you could see the difference. And then... Uh, and I'd say that over the last couple of years, it started getting bad again. But we're blessed here. I mean, it gets bad, as, you know, and, and we get affected. But it's not really right here, because I think for people, this is their safe haven. This is their place where they get their food. You know, you feed people. You know, Jesus came on earth, he fed people. Feeding people is a great thing, you know, because if they're not uh, afraid, of where they're going to get their next meal. If they're not afraid that they can feed their children, or like you see, get the diapers and and uh, uh, formula for their kids. If 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 uh, if you're taking care of people, there's a certain respect they have for you. 
There's this right now in, in scripture it says uh, even the enemies of a righteous man will respect them. And and it it and, and I you could see it. I mean they love us. We love them. We we've earned our um our, their love. We've earned it because when we first came here, you know, we, they were we were we, they were very leery of us. You know, what are you doing here? We don't want you here, you know. You know, I'll tell you a story. It's great. When we first got here, we were so excited because we're going to have all the kids and give them a place to be. And then, so we took the two garages and we emptied, we fixed them, put a refrigerator in there and furniture and stacked it. And then we invited them to have it like a clubhouse. So the first day, <clears throat> they came in, they destroyed everything. Every single thing. What are you going to do? He says, clean everything up. Clean it all up. Get rid of everything. Leave it empty. Next day, the kids came. And I, I opened it up, and it was empty, you know. And they looked and said, you're not going to kick us out? I said, no, I just thought you didn't like what we had in there, so now it's empty, and you can stay in there. You know, and, and those kids today, they did that. They're all married. They are not married, but they have their children. Some of them are married, you know, and kids go to school here. So, you know, they grew up learning unconditional love. You know, and uh, and I think they're just better for it. So I, I guess I learned um, really early on, you know, that, that love and forgiveness and mercy, that's why it's called St. Luke's Mission of Mercy, is really the way to go because they're wounded or they've had bad experiences or their, their home life isn't good. But they have a place where they can come where they know they just love for being them because Jesus loves us all. So... And what we do is for, with Jesus, you know, <clears throat> from Jesus with love. And uh, that's why they don't have to jump through hoops. That's why we don't fill out forms to give them formula and diapers. That's why they can come and get their meals for their families. And then, you know, if someone isn't doing the right thing, I don't have to worry about that. God will take care of that. My job is to take care and love everybody who comes here. And we have wonderful people all around that does that. You know, and uh, and I think you can see the fruits of it. So while there's, you use the term unconditional love that's offered, trying to help as many people as possible, there's also, it sounds like a, a social strategy that's involved, at least with when it comes to, to the future bill. Because I believe when someone's loved and when they have food in their stomach and they're covered over their head and clothes on their back, ready for the next step. I learned that early on in Marlowe's theory, you know, the pyramid. Your basic needs have to be taken care of first, and then you can go on. And then in human nature, you want to keep getting better. And, and that's really what happens here. I mean, a lot of the mothers that, and, and, uh, that we helped early on, now they're all working through jobs, they got a car, their kids are doing things, because they want to get better. I mean, I believe people do want to do it. You know, it, it, but if you're depressed, if you're addicted, if you're abused, it, it, it stops you from growing. It's been uh, 28 years since you've been here. Do you even recall your life before you came here? I'm telling you, everything I did in my life prepared me for being here. You know, and uh, once I and I when I had a, um, a St. Paul conversion in Medjugorje, Yugoslavia, in 1990, uh, I met Norm Paolini. God rest his soul. He passed away three years ago in Fatima, Portugal. And uh, he was a research scientist at Roswell Park Cancer Institute. And uh, we both had the same heart for the poor, so 
he quit his job. I sold a restaurant and so we could buy this and start working here. And uh, you know, no regrets, you know. I love every minute of it. I can't believe it. So sometimes it, I just, it's just like timeless for me. So much can be focused on what's wrong with the neighborhood and what's wrong with the community. Mm -hmm. What's right? What's good? Tell me oh, about I love this neighborhood. I, you know, it's funny because uh, a lot of times you can live in the suburb or somewhere and you don't even know who your neighbors are. One of my joys is to sit on the porch, you know, like after I'll just sit there and people will go, hi, Amy. I'm a, how you doing? Stop and talk. Everybody knows everybody, you know. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, I have never been afraid here in 28 years. Never been afraid. I, I love everybody here. They all know us. Uh, I'll tell you, Kuta, when we were here, you know, people are sick. So we have people who, you know, will steal or do whatever. And I don't get, well, one time somebody was stealing a case of chicken and all the people went into the nest, ran out in the porch. He's stealing, he's stealing. They got it and brought it back, you know, because we're family. I mean, that's what I think people don't understand. It really is a family. When you know everybody who's living around you, you know, and they all come here. And, you know, we used to have, I mean, the pandemic stopped a lot and we're trying to reopen again now. But when we, um, I mean, we never stopped during the pandemic. We gave out food. We did 500,000 meals during a year. <laughs> That's a lot, ain't it? <laughs> and we have, and, and a lot of it, we, and it, for a period, it was just us. I mean, in the beginning, I, I would, I was out one day and someone's crying. I go, honey, what's wrong? I don't know where I'm going to be able to get meals for my kids. I said, listen, as long as we're open, you'll never worry about your kids. I said, come with me. I said, see, this woman's got five kids. I want you to give her six meals every day. That's it. That's what we're here for. And now, you know, and then as it went on, and I, you know, you saw addiction rise again. I mean, I have people that were clean 20 years who relapsed. I mean, it's sad, and we're helping them get back on track, but um, we would take meals out. We were up to, they go down Broadway, a lot of heroin addicts, and we'd drop up, give them a meal. Um, go down to where, the, you know, the park near the uh, bus station, we'd give them meals there. And uh, give meals at East Utica has a train station. We'd go there and give them meals. So we were to doing up to 150 people, which is 300 meals. We would take out after we do this, the, the different volunteers would take it out for us. So. You obviously rely on people donating whatever. What do they donate? How can they donate? What do you need? Money. It costs us $25,000 a week to do what we do. Feeding people between the food, the containers, the uh, you know everything. Because I won't give them junk. I try to give them a balanced meal. We always make sure they have a couple, so they cost money. Everything's gone up, you know. And uh, so, yeah. So money is always the big thing. And uh, and the thing is, is that you know, I think people have a misconception that okay, now the pandemic is calming down so you don't need it as much. I may actually do more now than the pandemic. But that's because inflation, food costs, gas and transportation, that's why we take it out because people can't get here like they used to. You know, 
So I always say, you know, yeah, if people can help us with money, or that would be really the gift, you know. Uh, I never worry, though, because I, you know, I figured this is God's place, and he provided us. Last year, uh, it cost us $1.4 million in food. So, and I anticipate this year will probably go up over a million and a half. food effort at St. Luke's is something to behold. Each day, 700 people come to St. Luke's to pick up a lunch and a dinner to take home. It makes for a very busy kitchen, all run by volunteers. And on this day, chicken burritos are on the menu. So you made this all by yourself? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's kicking. Thank you, thank you. I had a little cake to eat, though. It's got a little spice to it, yeah, too. Yes. Nice. Yes. So people will like yes, it. Yes, yes. And for research purposes only, mm. I oh, sampled the work. Good. You did a great job. Thank you. Yeah, that's thank good. You. Thank you. <laughs> Next time I need uh, 700 pounds of chicken, I'm going to get You got that. You got that. Make sure anytime you get any type of extra food, any meats, I'll do whatever with it. So if you want to donate it, donate okay. it. Okay. All right. I'll look it right up. All right. There are nine missionaries, including Amy Beatros, who live at St. Luke's. Most of the rest of the massive effort of helping mothers, homeless men, babies, feeding 700 people each day, all falls on volunteers. One group from St. Bernadette's Parish in Orchard Park has been coming to St. Luke's for 17 years. My guide around the St. Luke's campus is Dennis Gahuli. His St. Luke's story began when he was helping with the music at his North Buffalo Parish. So Amy comes to Holy Spirit to bring the, her music group I'm up in the, on the altar playing the keyboards. Amy walks in the church and she goes, and I'm telling, and this, this is what starts it. She looks at me and she goes, she's in the back of the church. She's coming in, she looks at me and she goes, you, you're the one. You're the one God sent us. You are, and I'm like, what are you talking about? She said, God told me he was gonna send me a keyboard player. You're the keyboard player that God told me he was gonna send. Not long after that, Dennis and his wife, Sue, sold their house and joined the mission at St. Luke's, where they have lived for over 20 years. Before becoming a missionary at St. Luke's, Dennis worked in technology at the University of Buffalo. Now, he's one of the teachers at the school at St. Luke's. So, but the school up here is a kindergarten or preschool, actually, through eighth grade. I think currently we've got about, I don't want to inflate the numbers, it may be like 30-some students. Um, so we know we've got four students in kindergarten, three students in first grade, and our, our current eighth grade has two, seventh grade has one, they're small, but now our sixth grade has five. Um, our fifth grade coming up has got four, so the classes are a little bit bigger. We had good-sized classes, we were up to over 50, and then they dwindled down a little bit, and now they're kind of picking up again. Now, but, so where do the, are the kids coming from? The majority of the children are right from the neighborhood, especially from uh, families of the people that we help take care of, and, um, you know, a lot of the people, because the mission has a lot of houses that they've gotten, they've been donated. Those donated houses are a key part of the operation at St. Luke's. They also show how far the mission has come in 28 years. Initially, many of the houses were donated because they couldn't be sold. There was 
no market for homes in Buffalo's Walden Sycamore neighborhood. Now they house families who are being served, and they also house the missionaries. Dennis and his wife live on one floor of a two-family home. Amy Beatros lives next door. Amy Beatros says the Buffalo Catholic Diocese offered to sell the closed St. Luke's Parish with its aging school building and classic church for $200,000. A reasonable offer with one major obstacle. There was no money, but that was eventually found. Now the focus is on Build Promise to house and help the homeless of Buffalo, a $6 million venture that will feature 120 semi-private rooms and a code blue shelter that could help 170 make it through frigid Buffalo nights. Well, Build Promise, yeah, right now is it's the same thing. What I, if people are interested in learning about it, they can call and uh, they set up uh, like a little hour. It's just an hour. You give them a tour here. And they talk about Bill Promise and the things they can do. But it's the same thing. Right now, we're trying to raise six million. Uh, we have two point five million. Um, they're working on some foundations that, you know, are going to do that. The, the estimated time that that it will be uh, done is um, June of twenty twenty four. You know, by having to build it, but um, yeah, we've been blessed there too. You know, we just. Uh, Stu Harper from uh, retired from City Mission, and uh, he came to us and said, you know, I love this project. I'd like to work with you for three years to get it going. So they hired him. It's a different corporation because St. Luke's is Madonna the Streets, and Bill Promise is its own corporation, even though it's a spinoff of St. Luke's. Sure. And I'm president of both, but that's so that they could do different things than us because we don't hire anybody here. Everything is volunteer at St. Luke's, but that's going to be a different ball game altogether because it'll be open 365 days a week and it's going to be a whole thing so um uh, so they hired him to get it going and uh nancy langer so they're writing the grants they meet with the people they're going to get that done and then uh and he's not interested in running and just helping us get it right and he has the experience because they built the one at uh, city mission so it's been a blessing to help us and he knows the need I mean, they're already a city mission, does it? Yeah, but like I said, you know, they still are short, you know, and so um, I think this is going to be really, really a big help to the city of Buffalo, Mr. New York. And, you know, they say the east side of Buffalo, even though I don't like the, what they want to call now, East Buffalo. Right. So, but the, the truth of the matter is we take people from all over. We never ask where you're from. You know, I don't, we don't ask any of those. You know, you need, if there's a need, you take care of the need. You know, especially on the holidays, you see they come from all over. You know, we do our, our food. And it's funny because even dur during the pandemic, we found a way to do it. So, isn't that cool? Very cool. <laughs> Amy Beatros, founder of the St. Luke's Mission of Mercy on Walden Avenue in Buffalo. This is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks, our Friday recap of important interviews. Up next, while she might be known as a former head of the Buffalo School Board, Barbara Seals Nevergold is a historian of note. She spoke with WBFO's Dave Debo. Dr. Nevergold, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Dave. Talk to me, uh, I do want to draw a little bit on your experience, obviously, as an educator. Talk to me about the concerns involving not necessarily physical safety, but mental um, safe space in school. This is the first time we're headed back to school after um, the shooting. 
are kids' heads in the right spot? Well, I'm not sure. I I truly can say I'm not sure. Um, I think certainly that teachers and uh, other educators in the school district are aware that um, the children uh, who know about this this massacre that happened at Tops um, have been traumatized. Um, They're frightened. Um, uh, of open spaces or closed spaces. I mean, uh, I think all of us, not just the children, but the adults as well, uh, you know, have lost that sense of safety. Mm. You can't go into a supermarket. uh, You can't go into uh, a Walgreens. You can't go into the bank or to the movie uh, theater and not have some anxiety, some anguish. And, you know, with children... Um, they're not so likely to talk about that. Uh, They may express it in other ways, but as adults, we need to understand that that our children, uh, you know, have lost uh, a sense of being safe in their own community. I think any shooting will obviously shatter the sense of safety that people have. This one, however, targeted black people. Do you think kids are extra aware of that? Do you think they, they realize that these things happen because of the color of their skin? I think they are. Unfortunately, in this country, we have been moving um, backward, moving to a period of time, you know, when um, black people, when people of color uh, were openly, and even, um, you know, in terms of the law, could be discriminated against, uh, could be harmed, murdered, and the perpetrators not suffer uh, any, um, you know, any justice as a result of their behavior. And I think children, you know, certainly are aware of that. And so the, the children and it may not have that kind of specificity in terms of, of thinking about the whole process that this man undertook before he committed these murders, but they, you know, they do look again at the victims and the faces of the victims, and they see their grandmothers and their aunts, you know, and their uncles, and their grandfathers and fathers. And so, you know, it could be a family member. And so, yes, I know I think we can identify and they can identify, you know, with the loss. Does the mindset of someone like Peyton Gendron mean there was somewhere along the line a failure in education? I won't put it all on education, most certainly not. We don't know what his family upbringing was. We don't know what other kinds of influences in the community. We don't know what the influences of the um, the internet, you know, the, the social media. Sure. We do know certainly that children are on social media much more that those who, um, you know, themselves have not uh, been able, I guess, to, to have close friends or have friends, have relationships, uh, have spent a lot of time on social media and I think that has warped. We know that that many children really are harmed by the time they spend on, on social media. And when you say there are many reasons, I imagine you're saying that um, in any different shooter, in any different person, in any different um, racist, there are probably a plethora of reasons how they got there. Yeah, I'm saying I don't think we can pinpoint one reason. I think there are many reasons. Some of that has to do with the fact that there's ignorance about 
the you know the the life and the contributions and the achievements of other people such that they they are devalued and i knew we would get there eventually i can't have you <laughs> in this room without talking about history the importance of history i always thought um some of it was uh, culturally responsive the mm -hmm. idea that these kids need role models mm -hmm. and that uh, if there is no one in the curriculum that looks like them they don't feel as good. I, I, I get that. But it sounds like you just introduced another angle to it, that by learning about the history of people who have achieved things, we are better suited to recognize their humanity. We, it is a lot easier to not otherize them. The, the whole issue, at least certainly for me, and I know for many others, is that um, history is not only important to the people whose history we're talking about, but to those who are outside of that group, again, because of the human factor, because of the fact that um, if I don't know you, if I don't mm -hmm. um, understand uh, how you fit into the fabric of this world, of this nation, I won't appreciate you. I won't understand that you have, um, just as I have, um, you know, good stories, Sure. Not so good stories, aspiring stories, you know, ins inspirational stories. And too often, I think that that gets overlooked. Uh, and, and again, um, you know, when we think about some of the history uh, in this country, particularly as it applies to marginalized people, those histories are lost. Those histories aren't told. Those histories aren't considered part of American history. And they are. They are. When you think about African-American men, for example, from every single, in every single um, conflict or war that this country has had, there have been African-Americans involved in, in those, and they have been contributory to those. But again, you know, there's this, this lack of understanding, this lack of knowledge, this lack of, of historical teaching that makes sure that we all understand that not just and it's important not just for the black children to see themselves in the history but it's important for other children to see black people and to see hispanic people and see indigenous people in the history and understand that american history really is a combination of all those people and i think that's a part of the discussion that i haven't heard as often as the idea of um, creating role models, the idea mm -hmm. of it being important for African-American children to see African-Americans in history. Your argument is that there's a broader impact there. Yes. And I, I, I just am surprised because I hadn't necessarily thought of it that way. Well, you know, again, it has to do with the fact that um, we celebrate Af African-American history uh, in February. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. What what about the other months? Yeah. I mean, so and 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 it becomes a history into itself rather than the fact that it's part of American history. It's contributory to American history, and so we need to understand that this country was built on the work, you know, on the contributions, on the achievements, and even on the failures of all of the people who are part of this country, not just some of the people. And, and so that's, that's my push. I also find myself looking at um, the, the history um, that I, I write about, the history of African-Americans, the regional histories, and find them to be inspirational, find them to be motivational, you know, and, and I think 
wow, um, we should tell these stories. We, you know, people should know these stories, know about these individuals, know about these events. Which brings us to one of your big projects. Everyone says, oh, Barbara Nevergold, former president of the Buffalo School Board. Mm -hmm. Long before that, you were the person, along with uh, Peggy Brooks Bertram, yes. that created this whole Uncrowned Queens and eventually the Uncrowned Kings initiative. For those who are not familiar with it, mm -hmm. give me a, a quick primer. What is that? Well, this goes back to 1999 when Peggy Brooks Bertram and I were invited to join the Women's Pavilion Pan Am 2001, um, an um, ad hoc organization that was developing projects to commemorate the centennial of the Pan American Exposition. And the, the group was looking specifically at the role that women had played in many of these. And so Peggy and I uh, decided we would look at how African Americans were involved in fair, and we didn't know anything about them. And as we began to do some research, we found uh, an African American women's group called the Phyllis Wheatley Club that um, was instrumental and actually protested in 1900 um, to have the board of managers of the expo bring in an exhibit called the Negro Exhibit that illustrated all of the accomplishments of African-Americans since emancipation. The managers are only going to bring in the old plantation mm. and darkest Africa. Those are the two exhibits. So these women protested bringing in an exhibit that really showed again the accomplishments, the contributions that African-Americans in every walk of life. And once you found this woman's group existed, you said, let's profile them. That's right. And eventually others and um, others and others. Yes. It, it grew exponentially. And we found that there were so many of these um, bio biographical stories that were lost. Even those individuals who at one time may have been um, well-known in the community, once they died, once they passed on, nobody talked about them. They weren't in the textbooks. They weren't in the curriculum in the schools. And so we began to develop an archive on the Internet called, now we call it the Uncrowned Community Builders because it's both men and women. Uh, and in that archive, we have hundreds of biographical sketches and some longer of men and women who've been major community builders in this and one of the first people you profiled was Ida Fairbush? We didn't know very much about Ida. Uh, we knew that she was the first African-American to be hired as a Buffalo school teacher in 1897. Um, and that's about it. And it was actually maybe about 20 years later, 2019, that I decided to really do some research on her and find out you know, where she went to school, what motivated her to be a teacher, how she got the job in the first place, what happened, you know, after she worked some 40-odd years in the same school. Uh, and uh, so I've written a, a, a more fleshed-out monograph on Ida Fairbush's life. How, how do you do this? I dabble in genealogy, and I've heard, obviously, that it's a lot harder for African-Americans because there aren't records. Mm -hmm. Is the same thing true, not just of family records, but historical records? How, how do you launch a project like, I'm going to find out more about Ida Fairbos? Yeah, well, you start looking uh, at in the primary sources, possible newspaper articles, other literature that may be available to describe the context of the community at the time that she lived. So it's perhaps not exactly about her, but we know in this period, 
that she was living such and such was going on. So the newspapers are a really rich resource for information, and I didn't realize how, um, I guess, media savvy mm -hmm. African Americans were the time. So they they ensured that uh, a lot of their activities were covered in the news. And of course, we have our own newspapers. The Challenger is how old? Uh, the Challenger, I believe, was established in the early 60s, 1960s. And way before and that was the Criterion? was the Criterion, which was established in 1923, I think, or 22. And you told me before this program, there was also one that we don't know a lot about called the Star. Yes, the Buffalo Star. Uh, and that was established in 1932 by a man by the name of Andrew Jackson Smitherman, who came from Oklahoma. And by now, we have the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. And Mr. Smitherman was um, one of the principals uh, in Tulsa at that time. He had a newspaper there called the Tulsa Star. Um, he was actually indicted in Oklahoma as an insider of, of that the race Tulsa massacre. race. Wow. Yeah. And lived in Buffalo, came to Buffalo in 1925 because, of course, he was run out of Oklahoma. Um, they would have arrested him, and who knows what would have happened beyond that. Um, but very little was known about him. Uh, he was very prominent in Buffalo when he, came, you know, we worked here as a community again, a community advocate. Um, his newspaper was published until he died in the 1960s, uh, and I've done a lot of research on his life. Again, you know, a person. Uh, whose history is prominent and should be known, but um, was not. And so it, it takes uh, some work and a lot of hours <laughs> going through materials. Barbara Seals Nevergold is with us. You may know her as a former president of the Buffalo School Board, but I think that, that really underestimates all the work that you have done involving history and historical mm -hmm. research. Early in the program, we were talking about the need for history to not only help uh, African-American students understand themselves, but to, to have uh, the entire community of students understand each other, recognizing mm -hmm. shared humanity. Uh, as the program goes on, there are uh, a couple other stories I know you'd like to share about important people in history but I think one of them that we have to touch on was Cat Massey, one of the victims of the top shooting, someone okay. you knew, someone you worked with. Tell me a little bit more. Yeah, I met Cat um, in 2014 when I was running for school board that year. And she volunteered. I didn't know her, mm. but she came. She volunteered. Uh, she carried literature. Uh, she carried petitions. Uh, and she helped me uh, win that race. And afterwards, she would come to... Um, board meetings at times, and she would address the board, always um, very prepared, um, very cogent remarks. Um, you know, it has been noted, uh, she's written and written for um, the Challenger uh, and the Criterion. She would write uh, editorials uh, for them. And so I always appreciated uh, how um, organized she was, how level-headed, you know, and how she did her homework. So um, when she came with an issue, we knew that um, she had put some serious thought behind it and had some research behind it as well. Other profiles have said she was really very irrepressible, too. Not, not dominant about it, not nasty no. about it, no. but certainly there pressing her point. Yes, that's right. She, she was very direct. 
<laughs> in a good way, it sounds. In, in a Seriously. good way. In yeah, a good no. way. No, she was. She was not. I would say assertive. You know the difference between aggression, aggressive, and assertive. She was assertive, uh, and she was a pleasure. She was an absolute pleasure to work with. And this kind of loops back to what we said earlier about your uncrowned queens initiative there were people in this community she's certainly one of them mm -hmm. just doing things in their own way accomplishing things moving the community forward community builders you called them yes that's right that's right and we and we came up with that that term community builders just because again um that's that's what they were doing they they were developing the blocks to build a community. When we look at the history of African Americans in Buffalo, it goes all the way back to, to the initiation of the town of Buffalo and, and the city of Buffalo. And African Americans were really a very small, small population for many years, right through the 19th century, only one, about 1% 1 of the population were African Americans. So say uh, after the, the Civil War, 18. Uh, 65, Buffalo had about 80,000 people um, in their population. 800 of them were African Americans, and yet there were churches, there were businesses. Only there were 800. Only 800. Wow. And and those numbers again were very small when Buffalo became a city uh, in 1832. There were about 300 African Americans, and already. They had churches, you know, and then businesses. So, uh, again, when you look back and you see people who have this dom indomitable spirit and what they were able to do and what they were able to accomplish, I mean, it has to be inspirational to, to people to learn that. It has to be, you know, something like, wow, you mean, you mean they did that and there were only 300 of them, mm -hmm. you know? So um, that, that's what inspires me. You know, again, to tell these stories, and I, I believe that regardless of your uh, ethnicity or your race, um, you know, you have to be impressed by what, um, you know, what the community builders did in contributing to the development of Buffalo and Western New York. I'm wondering if throughout your study of, of the history of people who've made a difference, if you see a contrast between the community builders of old and those who might be carrying on a fight today. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the the reason it, it, the in, how can I put it the environment and the cause, uh, etc. I think um, molds and and brings forth the leaders that are needed to address the issues. So, in in some contexts, in some ways, the issues of racism and discrimination and bigotry, et cetera, have not changed because we understand that they are institutionalized in this country. You know, they're, system, they're in the system. Um, but the nuances of that uh, discrimination, that racism has changed. Uh, and so the leadership and the strategies used to address it has to change as well. Do you think currently there is a old guard, new guard dynamic underway? Um, that's hard to answer. I, I don't know. I guess that if uh, I were to say yes, uh, I'd be part of the old guard. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm not ready yet to, to, to admit um, to, to being part of that group. But um, most certainly, you know, we, we are shaped by our experiences and by our knowledge. And, and so um, it's like uh, my experience using a computer and my, and my grand, 
children's experience using it. We use it very differently. Uh, and and we use it for different reasons and for the same reasons. But you know their their knowledge and their skills are so much and vastly different than mine. I, I'm afraid sometimes I'm going to break the internet. So um, most certainly I I think that um, there is an old guard and a new guard emerging. And as in all um, at all times when there have been social changes, it's been brought about by the young people. We need the young people in, in, in the struggle, in the fight. Um, they have the stamina. Um, they have the resources uh, of, of the new strategies. And so we need the new guard. What should their agenda be? What does the community need? If, if there was one or two big issues that you wanted the activists of today and even, even the elders to concentrate on, what would mm -hmm. that be? Uh, I think making sure that our voices don't get lost uh, and and that um, the you know the voices are heard and that there's room made for uh, everyone at the table. Um, I'm working now on a, a project regarding Shirley Chisholm, um, who had a, a uh, if I can quote it correctly, a statement that if they won't make room for you at the table, bring, bring your, your own, own chair. chair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you know I think it's important to have as many people at the table and to make sure that the voices are heard uh, and that we don't forget. We have to remember um, the, what is happening now, the incidents that are shaping this community and changing. And if nothing else, um, the, the tragedy at Tops, you know, has brought out the, the fact that um, there are many, many voices in this community and they all need to be heard, and there are many needs that this community has, and they all need to be addressed. There are many individual needs, and I think a lot of the discussion about them also looks at the structures or the, the way that those needs were created. Mm -hmm. Is there something structural that needs to change? Is, there, is it integration? Is it housing? Is it, is it health and, and health disparities? What structural system is in place that you would love to just topple? Well, I think you've mentioned several of them, and uh, you, you know you ask if those things had changed over over the years. Uh, probably not, because of the fact. Again, when you look at the disparities, those disparities are are magnified by the group, by the marginalized group that they impact, and and most surely, uh, African Americans, you know, are impacted as one of those groups. Um, and so, you know, I think that we have to look at how we change, uh, how we address the issues of housing, how we address the issues of employment, of health care, um, because in a sense, addressing health care, for example, also helps you address how children learn. Mm. If they're healthy, you know, uh, if they have the nutrition, they'll learn, they'll be able to learn better. So, um, we probably are still talking about the same issues um, over the last hundred years or more. Uh, and uh, But now I think, you know, again, we're talking about them. We're bringing them all out and not just talking about them, but there are um, there is opportunity and there are things that are going on to make a change, to make a difference and not just talk about them, but to actualize uh, a change so that they become better. 
And my last question in, in many of these interviews is one that almost everyone answers the same way. Are you optimistic? Uh, I haven't heard your other guests. Um, they almost all response. say they are. They almost <laughs> all say they are. I am. I'm on the fence. I'm on the fence uh, only because I, I, I think that uh, this is going to take time. This is going to take a lot of time. I don't know that I'll see it in my lifetime. I, I'm, I'm hopeful and prayerful that, um, that it will come about, but I think it's going to take many years and a lot of um, sacrifice on the part of, of people who want to make sure that we don't slide back totally. That's Barbara Seals Nevergold. And we close the show today with Leah Watson, She's an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union. NICO is working with around 30 advocacy groups, and it's really focusing on issues that are arising in Buffalo public schools, particularly with regard to suspension, special education, and language access issues. If you are a parent who has faced these issues, or your student has faced these issues, or also a teacher who is worried about these issues, these organizations are looking to, into this issue because we know it has a racially disproportionate effect. A 2016 to 2017 report found that black boys in Buffalo had the highest rate of student suspensions in the state. And so many organizations are looking into these issues. And for parents of students, it would be wonderful for them to hear from you. That's the uh, what's often called the school to prison pipeline. The idea that exactly that um, black boys, especially according to the statistics, uh, face more severe discipline which starts a spiral, which possibly suspends them from school and gets them involved in crime and uh, school-to-prison pipeline. Yes. Now, you also mentioned language access. Explain what that looks like for me. Yeah, that's a great question. Schools in New York, we have the value of having a multi-ethnic society and wanting to make sure that students are able to learn and that there is part of our broader campaign that students are able to learn. So if your student has speaks a language other than English and has had difficulty um, receiving instruction that as they're learning English, that is an issue that we would want to look into further as well. We want to ensure that kids are in school and that they're able to learn. I don't want to get ahead of this uh, town hall meeting, but I assume the outreach is underway because you folks imagine such cases already exist. Is there any way before you gather all of the data to at least um, quantify the problem? How often do you see this sort of stuff? Well, I think these efforts are normally undertaken when we start to receive outreach, consistent issues. We see people reaching out to us with the same issues or different iterations of the same issues. So taking a broader approach. I'm not aware of research efforts ongoing at this time to quantify but that that might be occurring as well it happens enough that you say hey let's let's hold a town hall and look and see what it looks like yeah that's leah watson i'm thomas o'neill white thank you for listening